Welcome to the Renaissance Christian Church Podcast. We're a church family with the mission of seeking God, serving others, and sharing the gospel. We're grateful that you have joined us as we study through the Bible, and we hope that it brings you encouragement and inspiration for your daily life. Here's Pastor John Bandman. Well, it's so great to be here. I am getting used to preaching to an empty sanctuary. <laughs> uh, so I appreciate your patience with, with me, but I'm really excited about the word that we have this morning. Continuing our study in Isaiah, we're going to be in chapter 47 in Isaiah. This chapter is really interesting, very powerful chapter because it describes prophetically the fall of Babylon. As you may recall, Judah, the people of God have been um, taken into exile into Babylon or they're about to be. And now Isaiah is preaching prophetically and, and describing what is going to ultimately happen to Babylon in chapter 47. But before we go into Isaiah 47, I want to talk about what is the significance. You know, if, if Babylon was fell, and they fell in, I have the exact year, 539 BC. So we have this empire that falls in 539. What is the relevance to us here today in 2020 AD? How is that relevant to us? Why, why spend time studying this chapter? And the answer is because the fall of Babylon, the Lord uses as a type, it, it becomes a picture of what what the ultimate fall of this world is and will be, okay? So in other words, the historical event of Babylon falling becomes a picture or a symbol of how God describes the ultimate end of this world. The title of our sermon this morning is The Destruction of Arrogance. And as you're going to see, it's really the arrogance of Babylon that gets them in trouble and ultimately, for this world and all the nations of this world, it's their arrogance that God will ultimately judge when Jesus returns at the end of this age. All right, so the reason why this is so relevant to us is because we are living, in case you haven't noticed, we are living in the latter days. The, the Bible describes this time period from the time that Jesus ascended into heaven until he returns again as the end times or as the latter days. And in the midst of these latter days, we have all kinds of tribulation. You may recall a popular verse from, from Revelation where um, you know, we have the four horsemen. Uh, also, Jesus preaches and talks about there will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be earthquakes. There will be pestilence. And Jesus describes all these things as the birth pangs. It's not the end yet, but it's the birth pangs leading to the end. And so that's what we experience, what we've been experienced from the time of Christ's ascension until his return. If you think about world history, how, how, how often um, countries have struggled or gotten into trouble or just the manifestation of the satanic pride and arrogance of the world system that has continued to show up and and create havoc throughout this whole, this whole season of the latter days. So this fall of Babylon really becomes the archetype. It becomes the, the reference point. It's the symbol 
of everything that's happening throughout this age and how it will actually consummate at the return of Christ. So to kind of give you a sense of, of what that looks like, where, where that's most obvious is in Revelation. And we don't have the time to go through all these chapters, but on your own, I really encourage you to check out Revelation chapter 17 and 18, and you'll notice that the language and the descriptions are exactly in parallel with this chapter that we're going to study this morning from Isaiah 47. So, but to just give you a taste, a couple, couple verses out of Revelations, I'm in Revelation chapter 18, starting uh, midway through verse 2, says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. So what's being described there is not Babylon, the original historical event, but, th but this is prophetic language talking about the ultimate end times fall of the symbolic Babylon, which is the whole world system, the satanically inspired world system that Jesus will return and judge on the last day. And so this is prophesying that event. It goes on, if I skip down to verse 7, says, as she, as she, meaning this satanic world system, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am a widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Pretty intense language, right? But this is exactly the language that we're going to see in Isaiah 47 as God judges the arrogance and the pride of Babylon. And it's the same judgment that, this, that the world will have at, at the end of the last days. All right? And even, I think we all can feel or have a sense of what Jesus meant when you talk about the birth pangs because we are experiencing a massive pandemic right now, right? And Jesus warned of pestilence and famine, and there's actually a real uh, worry about famine right now because of what's going on in the world. There's been a massive locust uh, problem in uh, South Asia and Africa. So there's um, all these things that are, are the birth pangs that Jesus described. We are in the latter days, brothers and sisters. I'm telling you, we are in the latter days. And, and in the midst of this whole passage in Revelation, um, you know, you kind of ask the question, okay, well, man, what do we do? How do we escape this? And, and the, the uh, writer John, the, the um, evangelist John says in verse 4, he says, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. So how do we come out of a fallen, broken world, a world that is, is going to hell in a handbasket, a world that is, is moving rapidly towards ulti ultimate judgment, how do we come out of her? Do we, do we just go, go to a commune someplace and, and live separately from the world? Clearly not, and, and kind of the go-to verse for understanding how do, we, how, do we, how do we operate and be part of this world but not be of this world. And, and, and the passage um, I'm going to is John, the Gospel of John, um, chapter 17. 
And in this chapter, Jesus, as the high priest, is making intercession and prayer for his disciples. He's about to go to the cross. He's about to sacrifice himself to atone for our sins. And just before he does that, he has this high priestly prayer. And I'm just going to share one brief segment of it in verse 15. Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So what Jesus is saying is, look, it's not that you're going to leave this world or step out of this world or separate yourself completely from this world. We are all in this world, and we suffer the consequences with the world of the fallen nature of man, okay? Um, but Jesus prays for two things. He prays for, number one, that the Father would keep us from the evil one. And number two, he prays that we would be sanctified in truth in the meantime. So the way we operate in the midst of this fallen nature of this world, in the midst of these latter days, is that we know that Christ has interceded for us and that he's protecting us and he's asked the Father to keep us from the evil one, number one. And number two, as we go through this life, as we deal with the trials and challenges and tribulations of this life, God is continually sanctifying us so that when we confess the name of Christ, we, we are made new in him, we become a Christian. We don't instantly and immediately have perfect purity. We don't go from being a prideful, arrogant person to completely and 100% being the most humble uh, person in the world. It's a process, right? Sanctification is a process. It takes time. It's something that, that, that God is working in us over time through his word, through the Holy Spirit, washing us and making us more and more into the image of Christ. Amen? And in fact, these trials and these tribulations God uses as a refining tool along with the Holy Spirit and the word to refine our character and, and make us more into the image of Christ. And this morning, it's my prayer that as we go through this chapter in Isaiah um, 47, that we, that we really receive God's word. This is, some of the parts of this, I think, are going to be really tough. God is being very, um, really challenging and really, really uh, addressing Babylon's pride and arrogance. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we will recognize, particularly if we're a Christian and we have the Holy Spirit in our heart, we will recognize that we still have pride and arrogance in our heart, and God wants to deal with that this morning. So that's where we're going. Isaiah 47, verse, starting in verse 1, says, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Okay, now keep in mind, this is, this is prophetic about the actual fall of Babylon, the historical city of Babylon that will fall historically in uh, you know, about 500 years before, before Christ. So the ver again, verse says, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil. Strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers. Okay, what's God saying here? What God is saying here is, look, Babylon, you think that you are this tender, precious princess who is sitting on your throne, and maybe you are, 
that you're about to be thrown down. You're about to go from the highest height to the lowest low. You're going from your chair, your seat of power, your throne, to sitting on the ground. That's, that's about as far as you can fall in a, from a social uh, perspective, right? And not only that, but that your, your sense of being this pure, tender virgin, you're going to become, you're going to be taken from that place to becoming sort of a common worker. This, this language that says, take the millstones and grind flour. That's back in that day, they didn't have windmills, they didn't have water mill, mill houses, so everything was ground by hand, or it was ground by an animal, but in a lot of cases it was ground by hand. So, you know, the, the most basic rudimentary job you could have is just grinding flour and the, the stone uh, mortise and pedestal and, and grinding it into flour. Imagine the calluses you'd have doing that all day long. So that, that's the contrast that God is saying. It's this extreme from being on high to being taken down really low. Um, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers. That's something a lowly common person would have to do, you know, to cross a river. They'd have to pull up their skirts and cross through the river. So basically it's describing, you know, you're going from being a princess in the palace to being down in the ditch and having to wade through water. This is, this is the kind of fall that, that this language is des describing. And then in verse 3, he says, Your nakedness shall be uncovered, and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance, and I will spare no one. When I, when I see this passage, I think about you know, the vulnerability of being stripped bare. And I think of, puts, it reminds me of the story of Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned. When they fell, the first thing that happened is they realized that they were naked and they were ashamed of that. They felt vulnerable by that. And they went and hid, hid themselves and they, and they sewed fig leaves to cover their nakedness because they were exposed and vulnerable. Um, incidentally, when God comes to begin this process of restoration, even at that earliest moment, what does God do? He sacrifices an animal. He kills an animal and then makes clothes for them out of the skin of the animal so that then Adam and Eve can cover their, their shame in the clothes of a sacrificed animal. And what does Jesus do for us? Jesus sacrifices himself. And now we walk around in the skin of Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus. That is our covering Right, that he takes away the shame of our nakedness. I want to share a verse from a Psalm. This is King David. I love this Psalm. It's Psalm 32. King David writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. Has the Lord covered your sin this morning? Do you recognize that you have pride and arrogance in your life? And do you further recognize that Christ, through his love and through his sacrifice, will cover that sin in your life? That you won't have to bear the shame of your own pride and arrogance? I encourage you on your, time, on your own time to read this whole psalm. It's a beautiful psalm, Psalm 32. Going back to our passage in Isaiah, picking up, in verse 4, it's interesting, and this verse is kind of a standalone verse, um, which really kind of heightens the attention to it, I think. Verse 4 says, Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, 
is the Holy One of Israel. So this whole chapter, God is speaking to Babylon and talking about how much they're going to fall and how arrogant and prideful they are and idolatrous they are. And in the middle of this, and this has got this one line where it just says, Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name. Our Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Why put this in there? The, and, and the answer is, this is the one place of hope. This is, this is the crack in the wall. This is, this is our escape route from our own pride and arrogance to recognize that, you know what? The God of the universe, Yahweh, the, that word capital uh, L, Lord, that's Yahweh. That's the God who is self-existent, who has exist, existed from, from all ages. He is the Holy One of Israel. Holy means completely separate, completely beyond compare. And this God, who is completely beyond repair, is our Redeemer. This is our way out. If you've never confessed the name of Christ before, if you don't consider yourself redeemed by God, I would really challenge you and encourage you that today is the day. You know, these tribulations that I was just talking about, the pandemics, loss of work, all of this stuff, as, as Jesus said, these are the birth pangs. And one day, when we don't expect it, Jesus is going to end it. And when he does, he's going to judge this world. And there'll be no second guesses, no second thoughts, no second opportunities when that day comes. Today is the day of salvation. I encourage you to turn your heart to the Redeemer, the one who is without compare. He has given his son for you and died for you. And your, your only job is to confess him, to, to, to say, I believe you, Lord. I confess my sins. I submit my life to your lordship. Dwell in me. And he promises that's exactly what he'll do. In fact, if you're praying that, he's already done it. He is doing it. He's the one that moved you to do it in the first place. So I encourage you, if that's where you are, this, there's, this also, I think, also references two chapters earlier in Isaiah uh, 45, 5. I'm going to read a couple verses real quick. kind of expounds on, on this idea that God is holy. Um, verse 5 says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me, I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So God is in control, and he is absolutely holy, and there is no one beside him. And he is extending his hand in redemption to redeem us from our sin. And I encourage you, and I pray that you will receive his loving offer to be redeemed, and to escape the wrath that's coming on this world. All right, let's continue uh, back chapter 47, verse 5. says, um, Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the age you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you, you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. Okay, a couple things going on here. God is telling Babylon why their judgment is coming. And the reason their judgment is coming is because 
they took the empowerment of God, the, the plan of God, which was for Babylon to take Judah into captivity and to be an instrument of God's discipline on God's people, which they did, but then they went beyond that, and they, they in their arrogance and in their pride, they, they had no mercy on the captives of Judah. That this verse says, on the age you made your yoke exceedingly heavy, um, and you showed them no mercy. So God is, is angry at and judging Babylon's pride and arrogance because they had no mercy on these people that were God's people, that God had intended to discipline, but then Babylon took that much further. And you can read a lot about that, actually, in the book of Daniel. It's a great book for study if you want to see more of that. So that's why God is, is judging this pride and arrogance of Babylon. And he gets much more into the character of their pride and arrogance in the next few verses. So let's look at that. Um, and a lot of this is directed at national the Babylonian Empire, the national identity, but we can make personal application from this in terms of how we deal with our own pride and arrogance. So uh, verse 8, Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. Does that sound familiar? That's the only one who can really say that is God. But Babylon has become so prideful and so arrogant that they say, I am, and there is no one beside me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment, and one day the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. So what's, what's saying, what God's saying here is, look, you think you're all that. You are and there are no other. But I'm telling you, I'm going to take your king and I'm going to take your kingdom. This passage where it says, these, um, says uh, these two things shall come to you in a moment, and one day the loss of children and widowhood. That, that using this poetic language is basically saying, look, you're going to use your, lose your king, your master, right? You're going to become widowed, and you're going to lose your children. You mean you're going, you're going to lose the people of your kingdom and your empire. And why is that? Because of your arrogant pride. I am and there is no one beside me. Really, pride is at the core and the root of idolatry. Ultimately, idolatry is worship of self. We might talk about you know, idolizing money or idolizing fame or idolizing um, pleasure, whatever it is. But ultimately, what you're ultimately idolizing is yourself. You are all that. You are, and there is no, none beside you. That is the root of idolatry, and it's arrogance, and it's pride, and this is what God is judging. Continue on in verse 10, it says, You felt secure in your wickedness. Notice, by the way, this security is used twice. In verse 8, it says, You sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, there, I am and there is no other. And then in this next two-verse section, it says, You felt secure in your wickedness, you said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray, and you said in your heart, and it repeats again, I am, and there's no one besides me. Right? So where, it kind of prompts the question, where do you find your security? Are you secure because of your, your situation, because of where you sit? That makes you 
makes you think that you're secure? Or are you secure because you're able to hide your sin? You're able to, to do things and look, and nobody knows about this. It's not, it's not going to hurt anybody else if they don't know. What they don't know is not going to hurt them. Therefore, I'm secure. I'm not going to be exposed. Right? And, and the sense of power that comes with blessing or with status, with social status or economic status, provides an opportunity to think that you can do whatever you want and hide it and quote-unquote get away with it. But God's Word says in the end, everything is exposed. There won't be anything that's not exposed. And so I want to, especially for my Christian brothers and sisters, if you've got this hidden sin going on in your life and you think you're secure because nobody knows about it, I want to remind you, A, the Lord knows about it, and B, because he loves you, he's going to discipline you for that and put the weight of discipline on you until you repent and you confess it to him. So I really want to encourage you, don't think you're secure because your, your sins are hidden or they're, they're private and they don't affect anybody. Um, recognize that, that you have a way out. And by the way, I, I, I want to go back to Psalm 32 again and read a few more verses of this in terms of, okay, as we're confronted with the arrogance and pride of our heart, what, what do we do with that? What is the escape? What's our avenue f- for dealing with that? David in Psalm 32 continues with uh, verse 3. He says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This is... This is our salvation. This is our way out. As we are confronted with our own sin nature, with our own pride and our own arrogance, all we need to do is confess that to the Lord, expose that to the Lord. Just acknowledge to him, hey, you know what? I'm struggling with this. Lord, please forgive me of this. Help me to walk differently. Show me a different path. Right? Notice the words that David used. He says he acknowledges his sin He says, um, I don't cover my iniquity. I confess my transgressions, right? So as you're aware of, even this morning, as we're looking at these examples of pride uh, that Babylon has, and that really is the root of all human pride and the judgment at the end of this age, our job, if we put our hope and faith in Christ, is just to acknowledge it. Acknowledge our own sin. Acknowledge our own pride. Don't cover what's broken in our lives, the iniquity in our life, and confess it to the Lord. And he's faithful to redeem it. James says, confess your sins to one another even, and he will, he will heal you. Right? So I encourage you, as you're confronted in your life as a believer, to just make confession. Jesus said, look, you, you want to be my disciple? You want to follow after me? Then take up your cross and follow me. And take up your cross means taking this old sin nature, this body that is perishing, this, this body of, of flesh that is so prone to arrogance, and nailing it to the cross 
and following after Jesus. And the way you nail that to the cross is you just make confession. You just own up to, you just acknowledge your own failings. Continuing on, verse 10. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one beside me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall, uh, shall come upon you suddenly, for which you know nothing. And notice, notice this. God's saying, look, because of your wickedness, because of your arrogance, because of your pride, he says, evil shall come upon you, which you, shall, which you will not know how to charm away. Notice the language here, charm away. This is false religion. This is uh, using your, your rabbit's foot, you know, using your special charms to try to keep bad things from happening to you. And it really cuts to the chase. It's like, what do you ultimately trust in? What keeps you from evil? Is it Jesus and his prayer to the Father that says, Father, keep them from the evil one? Is that what you're hoping and trusting in? Or do you have all these little superstitions, these routines that you do that's somehow going to ward off the bad things that will happen to you? I'm telling you, that is your fallen nature that's, that's putting you under slavery of superstition. And God is saying, look, that's not going to help you. The only one that can help you is the Father. And Jesus has prayed for you if you'll walk in faith with him. And, it, and, it, and I, I, it's interesting the way he list, makes a list here. He says, evil shall come upon you. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you shall, will not be able to atone. You can't atone for the, for the disaster that's going to happen to you in this world. You can't cover it. You can't make it whole. You can't make it right. Even the nations can't do that, by the way. I know our government is working very, very hard to mitigate some of the fallout of this this pestilence, this pandemic, but you know what? They can't cover it all. There's only one who can cover it all, and his name is Jesus. So who are you trusting to cover the disaster that, it, that we all experience throughout our life? It can only be Jesus that ultimately covers that disaster. Ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. You know what? Three months ago, did any of us think we'd be in the situation we are right now? Last Christmas, was anybody thinking, oh my gosh, here comes this pandemic and we're all going to be isolated and I'm going to be preaching to a camera? <laughs> None of us thought that. We can't foresee or know what's in store for us in this life. But what we do know is that if we put our hope and faith in Christ, he will guard us and he will protect us. And if my life is taken today, if I'm run over by a bus tomorrow, you know what? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and I will enjoy him for all eternity. And on the last day, when he returns again, we will be celebrating in glory, and we will enter into the new heavens and new earth where there is no disaster, there is no COVID virus, there is no pandemic, and we will live in peace and joy forever with Christ. So that's what we have to look forward if we put our faith and hope in him. Verse 12, and, and this, this is God sort of mocking the false pride and arrogance of Babylon. Verse 12 says, Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. 
perhaps you may be able to succeed, perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. God's saying, look, you think you, you have it all together? You think you are superior? You think you're beyond everybody else? Let's see how you can hold up to what's about to happen to you. Let's see how far your enchantments and your sorceries will get when, when the rubber really meets the road. The implication of all this is, look, you know what? Your false religion, your, your false pride, your, your trust and hope in economic power, your trust and hope in social status, you know, the fact that you've got 300 friends on Facebook, that's not going to save you. Right? That's not going to keep you from all the evil in this world. There's only one that can keep us from the evil, brothers and sisters, and his name is God the Father and his Son Jesus through the Holy Spirit. 14, this is kind of mirrors the front end of this whole chapter. This whole chapter is kind of mirror image of itself, and it just goes back to, okay, this is what's going to befall Babylon. It says, behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this, no fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about, each in their own direction. There is no one to save you. So God is going to absolutely overtake the kingdom of Babylon. And just as he did that, 500 years before Christ, there is a day coming when Jesus returns when precisely the same thing is going to happen to this world system. The national arrogance and pride of our world will be overwhelmed and overtaken in one day, in one moment, by Jesus' return. And he will judge all arrogance. He will destroy all idolatry. And whatever arrogant idolatry is in our heart, will be lost, will be lost for us. Even as believers, Paul talks about, you know what, whatever we do by faith, it becomes precious stones and precious metals, gems. But whatever we do not of faith, in, in, in other words, whatever we do out of our own pride and arrogance is like wood, hay, and stubble, and it's burned up, right? So we enter into heaven, and, we, and, and with rewards from, from walking with the Lord, and the things of pride, of pride and arrogance are burned off. But for the unbeliever, it's only burning. It's only destruction. It's only eternal damnation. So again, I really want to encourage you, if you don't know that you're a believer in Christ this morning, today is the day of salvation. I'm going to close and finish off going back again to Psalm 32, it says in verse 6, it says, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at, at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. So, Today is the day. It says, therefore, I let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Today is a day that the Lord may be found. 
There is still time. This is the open door, the opportunity to find the Lord while he may be found, to confess your sin to him, to confess your arrogance and pride to him, and receive him and have new life in him so that he would, as David says, uh, preserve you in the time of trouble and surround you with uh, shouts of deliverance, that he would be your hiding place even in the midst of tribulation because apart from him, we're lost. And if you are a believer, as most of you are listening this morning, I want to encourage you that as you think about how, how God challenges the arrogance and pride of Babylon, that they're, they're trusting in economic wealth, you know, what are you trusting in? Do you trust in your, ultimately, in your savings account? Is that what's going to save you? You know, they trust in their social status. Are all your social media friends going to save you? They trust in their, their political power, their military strength. You know, the, the lesson of Daniel is that empires come and then they go. Empire rises and then another empire rises and, and destroys it and overtakes it. Then another empire comes and overtakes it. And the United States is no different, right? We are not immune to this ongoing process. In fact, the United States has its own share of prideful arrogance because all nations are composed of people and all of us have pride and arrogance in our heart. So, so if the, if the U, United States is still here when Jesus returns, the United States will be facing the wrath and judgment of Christ because of our arrogance, because of our political national arrogance, okay? And I love, by the way, I love my country, but it's not perfect. It's more perfect than many, many countries throughout history because our founding fathers recognized the, the corrupting power the corruption of power and the propensity for idolatry, and so they separated powers. But even so, it is not perfect, and there is a day of wrath and judgment coming, and the United States ultimately will not save your soul or my soul. It is God the Father, through his Son, Jesus Christ, and the empowerment and the renewal of the Holy Spirit that we are saved. So I encourage you, confess the things that you have pride about, the, the, the areas of arrogance in your own life, the false security, the things that you are trusting in that are not ultimately terminating on God himself. Amen? All right, let's pray. So Lord Jesus, I just thank you for your word this morning, God. I pray, Father, that you would convict us of our arrogance and our pride. Father, I have I have arrogance in my heart, Lord. And each of us, if we're honest with ourselves, just as King David was honest with his pride and his arrogance, if we will just confess that to you, God, if we will cease from trying to hide it from you, God, but rather we just confess it to you, we open it to you, we recognize and acknowledge our own failings and our own faults, and you are faithful and just to redeem that, Lord, to sanctify us, to change us, to turn us around and, and, and move us into a place of loving humility where we can humbly serve you, seek after you, serve one another, and share your great love and redemption to a perishing world. In your son's name, amen. Let's worship. Thanks for joining us in today's study. If you'd like to know more about us, 
or where you can attend one of our services, you can find information online at www.ren.church. That's R-E-N dot church. Thanks for listening.